Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. Yep. Uh, good evening. My name's um, Judy Wiseman. I'm a professor of sociology here at um, the LSE, and it's my great honour to be able to introduce uh, Lord Giddens this evening. Um, as I'm sure you all know, Lord Giddens was uh, director of the London School of Economics for some years, um, and he's also one of the most famous sociologists in the whole world. Um, he's, during his distinguished career, he's written on lots of different things, um, on social theory, personal relationships, and most uh, recently on climate change. And in, and in all of these areas, actually, all I'm going to say is in all of these areas, he's influenced a generation of sociologists. And really, although it always surprises me when I say this, the sort of his writings and discussions really are still very formative of the kind of debates we're having now. So it's an incredible honour and pleasure uh, for me to find you, And um, he's got a terrible cold, actually, so it's particularly um, wonderful he's turned up. Um, and, oh, I know, that was the other thing I had to say. I mean, Tony would actually prefer um, if you could write down the questions for him. So while he's speaking, perhaps if, if questions occur to you and if you could write them on a little scrap of paper, uh, we'll collect them at the end and then we'll, we'll see how many we can sort of deal with. Um, is that all right? So we can do that at the end. Okay? <coughs> Can you hear me if I talk like this? Can you hear me at the back? Well, can I just say um, thank you to Judy for the excellent and very fluid introduction. Judy and I have known each other quite a long while, as you might have sort of sussed out. And I'd like to thank the sociology department very much for inviting me. Uh, I'd also like to say how good it is to be back at the LSE. I mean, Judy sort of casually said I spent some years here as director. Well, it was quite a long time, actually. And uh, I have to say I loved every single day of it. Well, almost every single day of it. And if you sitting here have as good a time at the LSE as I did, you'll be doing very well for yourselves. Can I also say that the LSE is a fantastic opportunity for, as it were, global networking because of the diversity of students who work here. It's just an amazing thing not just to be at the LSE, but to take away with you for the rest of your lives. You'll have a network across the world, as it were, forever. Um, can I just... Um, make a kind of apology. I said it's lovely to be here, but I've risen from my sick bed to come here, and I can't see because my eyes are running. I can't smell because my nose is blocked up, and I can't hear because my ears are blocked up, and I can't speak because I've lost my voice. So I hope you'll bear all these things in mind as I go along. And forgive me if uh, I lose my voice halfway through. Judy said she would finish off the lecture for me kindly <laughs> if I got stuck. Well, what I want to talk about um, today is essentially work in progress, um, a book that I'm writing that has the same title as this lecture, 
um, of the end of history, the world in the 21st century, a sort of tiny, modest little topic, you know. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know that off the edge of history is different from the end of history, as you will hear in a minute. It's almost completely the opposite, actually, of the thesis of the end of history. All I can do in this discussion is sketch out some outlines, and I hope they're sufficient for you at least to see where I'm, what I'm getting at and what framework I'm developing. The reason why I suggest, well, two reasons why I suggested maybe you could write down questions. One, I might have lost my voice at the end anyway, so Judy could read them out and I could write down answers to them if it's really bad. <laughs> and alternatively, I'm just interested in your responses since it's work in progress, so I'd be interested to collect whatever you provide, but of course you're also free to ask questions in the sort of traditional way as well. Well, my starting point is, as it were, a long way away from the social sciences in the subject of geology. Um, I've been working for the last six or seven years on the topic of climate change. As a result of that, for the first time in my life, really, I got to know a lot of scientists, and I've tracked work in a variety of disciplines since that time. Well, in geology, um, an interesting transformation is occurring about how geologists think of the world in which we live. Traditionally, the geological age in which we live is called the Holocene Age, H-O-L-O-C-E-N-E. The Holocene Age in geology is the period after the last ice age. It's about the last 12,000 years, and it's the period, as it were, during which our civilization came to fruition. Well, there's a famous geologist, physicist, called Paul Crutzen, C-R-U-T-Z-E-N, Paul Crutzen, who was sitting in a geology conference somewhere in the United States, and uh, he was sitting there listening to people babbling on about the Holocene age, and he thought suddenly, well, we're not in the Holocene age. He, he thought to himself, we're in the Anthropocene age. The Anthropocene age is an age in which human activity has so influenced the physical world around us, the world of nature, so influenced and so deeply influenced the world in which we live, the external world, the world of nature as it used to be called, that nature is no longer nature. So he invented this term, the Anthropocene, which is anthropo, age of human beings, if you like, and then C-E-N-E, the Anthropocene age. And he argued, I think, entirely correctly, that this, this completely reorients and restructures the study of geology and some of the other physical sciences, because human beings, as it were, have invaded the natural world around us. A great deal of what used to be natural is natural no longer, and a lot of the ecosystems, which quite rightly we worry about, are no longer ex external to human activity. They're ecosystems operating within the context of the gigantic impact 
which you've made in the world around us. So if you, can, if you like, you can say that human beings are invading nature in a way which has absolutely no precedent in previous history. Human beings have always tried to humanize nature. Human beings have always interfered, intervened into nature. Some of the biggest deserts in the world were, by, were caused by human beings who simply used up the uh, minerals and so forth in the earth. But there's been nothing like the impact of modern industrial civilization, which is, after all, only about 150, 180 years old, in which we've invaded nature to a degree which has absolutely no precedent before, I think. One of the best ways to understand this is, in fact, in terms of what we're doing to the climate. To me, it's absolutely awesome that we as human beings are altering the world's climate, almost certainly creating massive dangers for us in the future, and doing so in a way which is irretrievable, because once the greenhouse gases which are causing global warming are in the atmosphere, there's no way of getting them out again. It's a very good example of what it means to live in the Anthropocene epoch, or what um, in the social sciences I prefer to call the anthropogenic age. We are the first inhabitants, as it were, of the anthropogenic age when human life has extended so extensively into the rest of the universe. Incidentally, there's very interesting research now being carried out which suggests even some natural catastrophes which uh, we used to think were completely independent of climate change might be influenced obliquely by what we're doing to the climate. These include tsunamis and also possibly some aspects of volcanic activity, although that is still somewhat controversial. But nature is no longer nature. We're living in a new age. That age I, I want to call uh, living off the edge of history because, it, because of the difference between our civilization as it becomes globalized, industrial civilization, and all the other civilizations that went before. The previous uh, sort of development of human history looks a bit like this. You know, it goes kind of up and down and there's a, certainly progress across the ups and downs. But when you get to about 1850, 1860, it suddenly goes like that. The actual map of world temperatures goes like that. A complete different from previous ages. What I mean by being off the edge of history is that we inhabit a world, which of course it has continuities with prior history, I'm not trying to deny that at all, but which is so different in some ways that we can't really learn much from previous history in trying to understand and relate to it. You've only got to think of numerous phenomena around you to see this is true. Climate change is one of them, but so also is something I was talking to Judy about just before we came into the lecture, uh, the impact of new forms of biological threats in the world today. There are new forms of potential epidemic far more serious and dangerous than others that ever existed before because the diseases are new. We've caused these diseases by changing the environment in such a way 
that the uh, disease organisms have skipped from animals to human beings and we also might be causing them through the scientific innovations and supposed advances which we're carrying out. You might have seen what we were talking about was that um, I think it was yesterday or day before the first case of SARS um, actually passed on in this country um, happened or the person died from it. I think it was yesterday. SARS is a lethal um, disease and obviously we hope we can contain it. But what I mean by being off the edge of history, therefore, is that we're kind of on our own in the 21st century because there are so many threats and also alternative ways of life, as I'll say later on, which are not just extensions of previous history, no matter how important previous history is. Obviously, religion is still here. Christianity is 2,000 years old, still very influential in the world, all those kinds of things. But when you come to deal with issues like what is the Internet doing to the world, what does the Internet mean? Is the Internet some kind of gigantic mind which we've created, whose dynamics we don't understand? Why is it that people go along the road talking on their mobile phones all the time? I was in this bloody supermarket yesterday, and this person was in front of me, and I won't say as a he or she, you know, they had their phone propped up like that while they were making their order. And it took about five minutes to make this order because they were blooming well talking on their phone all the time. Well, what have people got to say all the time that they're on their phones? <laughs> that, why, people, why do people hold their phones in their hand? Well, you have to ask yourself, I suggest as a serious sociological question, are you using the mobile phone or is the mobile phone using you? Because when you use your mobile phone, you're part of an unbelievable global system of direct interaction across the other side of the world. Again, there's no parallel with that, really. In most civilizations, you didn't have electronic communication at all. The electronic age only dates from about 1860, when the first Morse code message was sent. To live in a globally connected electronic civilization is just different in many ways from the past. So that's what I mean by moving off the edge of history, that there are so many issues that we'll have to deal with, and plenty of them are big, big risk-type issues, for which, although there are antecedents in previous history, in many respects we have to deal with them as though, well, we are meeting them for the first time. I'd just like to say a bit about that, because... When you're dealing with risks that you've never faced before, you can't measure them. You don't know the consequences until it's too late. That's why there's so much controversy around climate change and global warming, for example, or let's say the threat of nuclear war, nuclear proliferation, because we only know for sure when it's too late. Very hard to handle risks like that which we haven't had previous historical um, experience. That is one aspect of the world in which we're living. I think to be moving off the edge of previous history while still, of course, sustaining many continuities with it at the same time. But that is not all. That is not all. Because just as we're invading nature, equally important 
we're invading human nature in a way which also has absolutely no precedent, I think, in the past. I don't know if anyone here has come across the literature on singularity. How many people have heard of singularity here? Well, a few, that's good to know. Do you want to give the rest? Oh, okay. Well, well anyway, since most people haven't heard of it, I suggest you do have a look at it if you're at all interested in these themes. Because I find it, I don't know what you think, but I find it kind of mind-blowing. What singularity is, is it's a notion that comes from mathematics. And since I don't understand any mathematics, since I've only got O-level mathematics, fortunately... I don't really know what it means, but what it appears to mean is that there's a certain point at which you get a time series which goes off towards infinity so that you get accelerating processes of growth which disappear um, into some end result very rapidly and miles away from your starting point. And this guy has written this book, well, he's written several books very controversial, but I'd recommend you have a look at them if you're at all interested in these themes, as I think everybody should be, really. Uh, a guy called Ray Kurzweil, mm-hmm. K-U-R-Z-W-E-I-L, who even Judy's heard of, so he must be quite <laughs> famous, therefore. <laughs> who has actually, interestingly, become the executive director of Google quite recently, but is... Uh, a scientist who worked in artificial intelligence most of his life. And what he says is, within, our li- or within your lifetimes anyway, people sitting here, human beings will no longer be human beings. Because of the accelerating, he says, multiply accelerating rates of innovation in several convergent disciplines. This is a big fat book, so... You know, there's a lot of science in it, and it's, while controversial, you know, backed time by a lot of information. One being nanotechnology, um, the other being artificial intelligence, and the third one being biotechnology. He says these three are all coming together to transform our understanding of the human body, and more importantly, the human mind. And he says that there is as I just mentioned, the law of accelerating returns happening. That in these areas, knowledge is not just progressive. At the moment, it's geometric. That's why he talks of the singularity. So what we're doing is not just invading nature on the one hand, but invading human nature on the other in the most extraordinary degree. I mean, until I read this book, and of course, everyone must have some reservations about it for obvious reasons that I'll say in a minute, but it sort of opens your own mind to the multiple possibilities of what it means to be human as technology penetrates more and more into the actual core of what human beings are. I don't know how much you know about nanotechnology. But nanotechnology itself is incredibly interesting because it's really human beings playing God. It's at a level, as I understand it, below DNA. 
It's at a level of molecular technology in which we'll literally be able to rebuild um, uh, parts of not just the human body but many other artifacts in the world. Imagine that coming together with a kind of acceleration in artificial intelligence and biotechnology. And what Kurzweil says is that human beings will develop intelligence which is hundreds of times higher than the intelligence which either individually or collectively we possess today. It'll simply be an acceleration in, in the human mind, partly because of the merging of human bodies with computers and with nanotechnology. And he charts out what's already happening, according to him. Um, there are computer programs which already which can more or less simulate the brain. But these computer programs are very slow. And as yet, they can't carry out the same kind of level of operations as the brain can. But he says, and this should interest the younger ones in this room, that if you're relatively young, which means under five, anyone here? No. <laughs> oh, well. No, if you're relatively young, he says, live long in order to live forever. Uh, what he means by that um, is that immortality is for the first time no longer a religious concept, but a tangible one in the possibilities for human life. And not only does he say that it's a tangible prospect, but it could happen in the next 30 or 40 years. That's what makes his writing so controversial um, among many other scientists. Now, to me, it doesn't matter whether he's right or wrong in that sense. But what it shows, and what, what other writing along these uh, lines show, is that just as you've got a fantastic expansion of human life into nature, so you've got a fantastic expansion the other way as we delve into what it means to be human. So that we're living in a quite different world from anyone else because of the spread of those opportunities and risks. On the one, I mean, these things were purely religious notions before, right? On the one hand, the real possibility of apocalypse. We're probably the first generation or second generation that lives with the possibility of apocalypse. Apocalypse is no longer just a religious notion. We know that we could destroy most of the life on Earth. And I think you could actually date the period at which the possibility of apocalypse became real. And that will be in the 1950s when the first thermonuclear weapons were invented. When the first thermonuclear weapons were invented, they were much, much more powerful than the old atomic bombs. And they changed the sort of structure of risks, really, in the contemporary world. So the possibility of apocalypse has become real. It's become real in the case of climate change and other areas which I'll mention in a minute. On the other hand, so has at least the possibility of immortality. Now, what does it mean to live in a civilization which has so expanded the range of risks and opportunities that we don't know how to chart them? But this, I think, is for better or for worse, 
the world which we're either condemned or lucky enough to live in in the 21st century is your world. A world where the boundaries of what human existence is are massively greater than ever before and where none of us, none of us really knows how to fill in that gap. Well, if you like, you can say that it, everyday life has become science fiction because some of these things are beyond what science fiction writers were writing about 20 or so years ago. In case you doubt, you know, whether any of this is meaningful, I just picked up this thing in The Guardian yesterday, actually, while I was in my sick bed looking for something to do, which says bionic implant could give the paralyzed movement back through thought control. And it's from... Uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I'll just read a few bits of it. Uh, Miguel Nicolelis, a neurobiologist at Duke University in North Carolina, is a pioneer in the development of brain implants that can be used to control computers or prosthetic arms by thought alone. By thought alone. His aim is to develop ways to help paralyzed people regain mobility and ultimately to build what he calls an exoskeleton that can move a paralyzed person's arms and legs in response to their thoughts. His results were presented as part of a series of sessions on advances in brain-machine interfaces at which other scientists presented a bionic hand <laughs> which would connect directly to the nerves in a person's arm and provide sensory feedback of what they were holding. An advanced sort of version of this happened last year when a 58-year-old woman who'd become paralyzed after a stroke demonstrated that she could use a robotic arm to bring a cup of coffee to her mouth and take a sip just by thinking about it. I'll just read you one last bit. This is really old-fashioned technology, do apologize. <laughs> this is redundant newspaper. Even more redundant liberal newspaper in this right-wing world we live in now. In the, in the future, Nicolella said it might be possible to use prosthetic devices to restore vision. For example, if a person's visual cortex had been damaged by training different parts of the brain to process the information, or, this is the interesting bit, or you could even augment normal brain function using the principles we're describing here in a non-invasive way to deliver the information. We could learn to detect other sorts of signals that we don't normally see or experience. The perceptual range could increase. In other words, we could extend the universe in terms of what we can perceive in a sensory way at the moment. These things are real. These things are happening. And there is, I think, in some respects, a sort of geometric advance in them. So in the rest of the lecture, I just want to sort of work out what it means to live in this uh, kind of world. Because, as I said, this is the world which, for better or for worse, it seems as though we have to live in and it changes I think how we think about history changes how we think about our future 
the sort of core issues for the social sciences of a very down-to-earth kind, I feel, in all this, which I'll come to later. Well, in the literature um, of the social sciences, not surprisingly, you can find a big division about what our future is going to be like. And this is a division between people who I call the doomsday thinkers, on the one hand, the doomsday thinkers, and on the other, the optimists. And they have very different views about what our future will be. And you find very reputable people, including many scientists, on both sides of this debate. Um, I take as an example of a doomsday thinker, actually a good friend of mine called Martin Rees, R-E-E-S, who wrote a book called Our Final Century. Interestingly, because I'll come to optimism a bit later, um, in America, which is probably a bit more optimistic than our culture, they, they made him call it Our Final Century with a question mark <laughs> after the title. But in the English version, it's called Our Final Century. Well, Martin Rees is... <laughs> <laughs> Martin Rees is probably the most, one of the most famous scientists in this country. And what he analyzes in our final century is all the forms of risk which could destroy large chunks of our civilization during the course of this century. He discusses climate change, of course. And incidentally, climate change is a huge existential risk for us, I think which the world at the moment is in absolute denial of, the huge existential risk for our future. But he also goes through many of the things which, interestingly, are in Kurzweil's book. For example, nanotechnology could, some people say, be very dangerous. There is this famous theory, you've probably heard of it, Mr. Singularity, probably heard of it, um, you know, this thing where nanotechnology could create kind of what they call a, a kind of um, nano, tiny, tiny nano robots, robots which could gobble up the ecosphere, gobble up all the things that we, grey goo they call it, grey goo could be created by um, the misapplication of nanotechnology. And then, of course, there's always weaponry, there's never, I think, been any significant scientific advance that hasn't been turned to the purposes of violence. We've got drones circulating above the world as we speak, a different kind of warfare from the past. Who knows what nanotechnology could bring? Interestingly, it might interest you anyway, Martin made this bet with a fellow physicist well, it's not something to joke about, really, but he bet $1,000, which doesn't seem to me very much, but he bet $1,000 that by 2020, um, a city would experience a destructive onslaught that would cost at least a million lives uh, because of some terrorist act or act of war. Well, 2020 is not very far off, and... $1,000 always seemed to me sort of hopelessly inadequate compared to disaster like that, really. Is he really going to connect his money if, you know, if some city is devastated? But obviously, the threat is there, see? He explores the ways in which this could become our final century. And for you, you know, all of us, we have to live with this because it could be. It could be because of uh, the, the vast panorama of innovation which I've sketched out. Well, on the other side, you'll be pleased to know there are the optimists, and 
uh, a good version of The Optimist was a guy called Matt Ridley, R-I-D-L-E-Y, Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley uh, is a kind of businessman turned scientist, quite an interesting person, and he wrote this book called The Rational Optimist. The Rational Optimist. A lot of newspapers liked it because, you know, it's nice to be an optimist. So he got a lot of, well, especially when people are going on about climate change and all that, you know, so he liked that. So um, it got quite a lot of airplay. What Ridley says, by and large, is that over the course of human civilization, there is progress. There is a great deal of progress in our culture, uh, 21st century culture. People live longer than ever before. Even if it's a population problem, there are far more people in the world than ever before. We're making medical advances all the time, like in that article I just uh, quoted to you. So that there is progress and human beings are making progress across the course of human history is his thesis. Well, how do you sort this out? Because this is quite a big division. I mean, the doomsday thinkers quite rightly point out that most previous civilizations have ended in disaster. Most previous civilizations have subverted themselves. We're the first global civilization ever. We have the chance of subverting ourselves where the results, of course, could be catastrophic. How do you decide? Well, my view is actually that you can't. So I want to propose a different way of looking at things, um, which is kind of the thesis that I'm working out and trying to see how it applies when you set it in concrete circumstances. Um, what I want to argue is that we live in what I want to call a high-opportunity, high-risk society. A high-opportunity, high-risk society, where because of the panorama I sketched out before, the level of opportunity is much greater and the level of uh, risk is much greater too. But where we have to recognize that risk and opportunity always intertwine. They always intertwine. You've heard it said that every risk is an opportunity. This is the case. It's also true that every opportunity involves risk-taking. So it's probably a mistake just to counterpose these two schools of thought. And as it were, we have to study the tangle of opportunities and risks which confront us because the opportunities are very pronounced, as you can see again from the article I just quoted to you, which is the outer edge, really, of what medicine is doing in terms of producing cures for illnesses or transforming our knowledge and our ability to improve human life. So I think if we call our society, not as Ulrich Beck did, just a risk society, but a high-opportunity, high-risk society, it captures a good deal of, of what the 21st century will be like for us, and we have to pioneer away, as it were, between these two things and examine their interpenetration. Thinking like this has led me to change some of my views anyway because I used to think that, that well, I still think that sustainability, environmental sustainability, is a key issue for us. But I've come to see sustainability as a much more difficult notion than I na naively did before. I used to think, I suppose like many Greens think, that sustainability means living within clear limits. Well, of course it does, 
The point is we don't know where those limits are because we can't predict in advance the dramatic technological advances that can happen. And that is what it's like to live in a high-opportunity, high-risk world. Of course, we have to, I think, respect limits, but we also have to sometimes turn conventional wisdom around. Let's say, you know, 9 billion people living in the world, that's clearly off the edge of history because even in 1850, you had uh, just under 1 billion people. There'd never been 9 billion people in the world. But just as a thought experiment, what happens if you treat 9 billion people in the world as an opportunity rather than a risk? What happens? Well, it's quite interesting, at least as a sort of thought experiment, to think that way, I think, because it would lead you, I think, to place a lot more emphasis upon um, innovation in food production, uh, changes in the way in which we organise our relationship to agriculture and other forms of uh, farming, and would lead us, I think, to invest in blue skies technology to try to cope with these issues, as well as, of course, involving ourselves in social reform, too. Well, I just have a, a, just a few other points to make about this to try and help um, sort it out when you look at this division between these schools of thought. Uh, first of all, I think if you look at the doomsday thinkers, compare them with the optimists, one conclusion one must draw, conclusion number one, as it were, is that one must never avoid risk. That is, you have to take risk seriously. We live in a world subject to extreme system risk. Again, quite different from the past. The financial crisis is an example of extreme system risk. What we mustn't do is live in denial of risk. I don't know how many people here are smokers, but if you smoke, it's fine. But it's better to recognize that if you smoke, you've got about a 50% chance of dying from some lethal disease caused by that smoking. No reason why you shouldn't do it, because people ride motorcycles and well and so forth. But what you shouldn't do is say, oh, well, I can always give up next week. Or my granddad smoked 90 cigarettes a day, and look, it didn't do him any harm. We shouldn't use these uh, rationalizations. So we have to accept that we live in a world of high system risk and see how to deal with it, not as we're doing with climate change at the moment, I think, just live in denial of that risk. We are, in, in effect, living in denial, I think, of the risks posed by climate change. How much longer have I got? About 10 minutes is all right. 15, yeah, 15. Well, I don't want to bubble on for too long, really. Anyway, um, so um, I think it's absolutely crucial that we're not in denial of risk in our personal lives or in our global future, but we always look at the twisted tangle of risks and opportunities. Um, You might remember this interesting thing about... um, Do you remember the Mayan apocalypse? On December 21st, the world was supposed to come to an end. Quite an interesting example of... Apocalypse, quite a lot of sort of you know apocalypse jokes there were around. If I can um, remember them, one's quite subtle. Um, everyone's talking about apocalypse as though there's no tomorrow. Do you get it? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, don't worry. You can always do things today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then there's a resurfing of uh, mine apocalypse jokes around the meteorite in Russia, you know. The meteorite in Russia, the, <laughs> the meteorite which made all these buildings shudder and people suffer. I had a note on it from the Mayans saying, told you so. And then <laughs> there's this other meteorite, a massive one that just missed the Earth, you know, by 17,000 miles, which apparently is nothing in cosmic terms. That also had a note from the Mayans saying, this is only the beginning. <laughs> anyway. Um, so my first point is don't be in denial of risk. My second point is we have to think about the future in a very different way because the future has become opaque to us. The reason why the future has become opaque is precisely this vast spectrum of opportunities and risks that we face. I think you should notice what this means because our whole kind of orientation in Western philosophy was that uh, we would confidently march in and conquer the future. That was the point in the Enlightenment. We would make history, as Marx said, in knowledge of our history. It hasn't turned out like that at all. Um, the future is puzzling to us, and intrinsically so. So that, for example, I'm writing a book on the future of the European Union. You know, I'm a bit worried the European Union might not even exist by the time I publish the book, because... If, <laughs> We don't even know what's uh, going to happen to the European Union. Well, you know, I think that's how the future is going to be for us, and it's probably going to be like that on your level of your personal lives too, which makes it a pretty big turnaround, I think, from what we anticipated and, again, a difficult world to live in. Thirdly, when we think about the future, we're often going to have to do it in terms of backcasting rather than forecasting, because of the level of risk uh, which we face in the 21st century. Um, backcasting is an idea that came from the climate change literature originally, actually, which means you look into the future, you see what climate change will do if you get to a 2 or 3% increase uh, in greenhouse gas emissions, and you work back and see what you've got to do to prevent it. I think backcasting is going to be at least as important as forecasting uh, in the future. And we have to do it, we see, with the economy as well, since we've had this catastrophic system collapse, essentially, in the global financial economy. We have to think ahead and think, how are we going to stop this happening again in the future? So this is, in a way, a different way, really, of, of thinking about the future. Now, all this might sound to people here as very vague and grandiose, but I don't think it is, actually. It, to me, studying a high-opportunity, high-risk society is going to be the task of the social sciences for the 21st century, and I think it impinges on everything. Just to give you an example, um, in the work I've been doing on the future of the EU and the future of the US, I've been looking at the possibility of reindustrialization in the US, what they call reshoring of jobs as opposed to offshoring, and looking at technological innovation in that. Well, one of the most interesting things that I've found is the invention of 3D printing. I take it that most people here will know what 3D printing is. It's, again, a sort of unbelievable technological breakthrough because 
um, in 3D printing, a computer no longer talks to another computer. A computer actually makes something in the physical world. You make it through the computer. If you're wearing a shoe, as I presume you are, a 3D printer can actually make a, a pretty good shoe now, uh, comparable to that made by a, a human worker. And um, the MIT lab, which works on 3D printing, is trying to produce a system which will um, uh, print whole systems, not just print objects, and sees this as something which is going to happen in the relatively near future. If you can print a whole system, you could print a whole device out of your computer. The guy who's running this program at MIT says he wants to design a plane, ultimately, which will fly directly out of the computer. Not, <laughs> not just a plane which is designed on the computer, which, but which will fly directly out of it. And this is not just the future, this is here, because digital production is likely to produce a revolution, I think, in manufacturing. And the point of it is you can bring it back locally. You don't need to import from China or import across the rest of the world. You can do it locally through your computer, but within a global network. So it has many, many implications. And it's a kind of, you know, risk, opportunity, kind of edge, really, in the future of manufacturing. Well, finally, as we confront this world, you know, should we be pessimists or optimists? We, when I used to talk about climate change, uh, people always after the lecture would ask, are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? And I always said, as I would say this time too, that I would tend to bracket out that opposition. That is, being a pessimist or an optimist is of no relevance unless, as Matt Ridley said, you, you try and give it some rational foundation. Let's say, God forbid, but someone here got really serious form of cancer, that person might say, well, I'm an optimist. I'm going to go for um, simple changes in my diet, and I think this will make me healthy again. Well, to me, that would not be a rational form of optimism. So optimism and pessimism have to be rationally justified in relation to the twists and turns of opportunity and risk that I've just described. And, you know, lots of jokes about optimists and pessimists, too. It's said that um, a pessimist is someone who's lived in too intimate relationship with an optimist. Well, you see the perversity of life? You turn that round, that saying, and it's just as true as is the other way around. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, no one passed any questions down, so I might as well just have questions. I reckon if anyone wants to ask them. If not, I'll just go home and die, if that's all right. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a laugh. You're not supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> Is there a roving mic somewhere? Yeah. I think there's, some, there's someone... Well, it's easy. We can all go home. There's one up there. Oh, there's a few, I think. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the lecture. And uh, for, so put the mic right in front of your mouth like this one. 
Okay, yeah. Sing us my way. My my, my question is that if to summarize what you already said in the current global affairs, can we finally say that the current and contemporary society just stepped into postmodernity? And not into like we, we got over the process of the transition from modernity to postmodernity, or we are still in the kind of liquid modernity. What Bauman saying? Thanks. Well, I don't I don't have any time myself for distinction between modernity and postmodernity. I just think that we are living in an extension of industrial culture, which goes back, as I said, 150, 170 years. There is not a transition to a postmodern society. I always said that actually. Um, yeah, there's something in what Bauman says about liquid modernity, certainly, because it is quite an unsettling world to live in where, um, you know, you, you often will get a back-to-the-future kind of reaction. So you'll get people who want to have slow food rather than fast food. Why not, for example? Um, I think, you, you know, back-to-the-future reaction is quite uh, rational in some aspects of this world. For example, the car seemed to be at the cutting edge of freedom and mobility, um, but once you got congestion in city centres, it's sensible to go back to the bike and go back to walking. So, you know, a world of technological innovation produces many different counter-reactions, and some of them, to my mind, going back to low-tech, are entirely rational. So I'm not saying you just go along with this world, but I don't regard it as postmodern. no. This chap here, yeah? I have a question. Uh-huh. Uh, my name's Jeremy Asher. Do you think the governance structures that we have today, both at national and at international level, are fit for purpose to deal with the kind of challenges that you've described? Did everyone hear that? It's whether or not governance structures in the world are able to deal with the sort of circumstances I described, and I think... You know, everybody now working in IR would tend to say no to that because you know, I think what we anticipate, and indeed what I'm writing about the European Union, you know, we thought the European Union might be kind of vanguard towards global governance, but now I think we can see it isn't. And we, could see, we can see that those institutions that many of us held most hopeful, like the United Nations, probably weaker than they've been for many years. So the world does seem to be devolving more into a series of of power blocks in which decisions are taken in G20 and the IMF outside of much democratic legitimacy. So I would say we're really struggling to deal with these things. To me, climate change is like the epitome of that because I started out thinking, you know, we should certainly have these international UN meetings trying to regulate climate change. We should agree to reduce emissions. What's happened? Nothing. Nothing. We've had 20 years of UN meetings with virtually no concrete outcome. And so, I mean, that to me is a sort of very good example of the kind of difficulty of global governance at the moment. And this also extends, I think, quite a way down because... You know, local politicians are not trusted anymore. And part of the problem with the internet and also the advantage of the internet is that since there is no privacy anymore, we're able to expose all these forms of corruption in different institutions from the police through to, um, you know, the other institutions, UK politicians, BBC, etc., etc., the media. But um, if, you, if everything is private, it's hard to see how you can have an effective political leader to me. How can you have a leader who hasn't got something 
to hide. You know, anyone who's interesting has got things to hide, surely. You know, if, you, if you get people who don't have anything to hide, you get the political leaders we've got at the moment who have no character or kind of depth to them. Sorry, yes, yeah, you've got someone over Well, hang on, team, we've got someone over here who's been waiting. Hang on. All right, let's... <laughs> Uh, yeah, just Why echo... was there no one and suddenly there were all these people asking questions? To, to echo that previous question, but put a different slant to it, do you think that our human cognitive structures are fit for purpose to deal with the world that you've set out? Um, human beings seem to be very bad at dealing with slow creep problems like climate change. Uh, and perhaps there's actually a role for technology to enhance our thinking. Yeah, as well I, think, yeah I think that's a very good question. People heard, does human cognition human mentality allow us to deal with issues like climate change and I think the answer is probably is you know pretty difficult because it's so easy and if you like it's kind of human nature to put off what you don't have to do today and to think of abstract risks in the future like if you're 16 and started smoking you know you never know you don't really think you're going to be 40 and dying do you because it's too far off as it were and here we are creating these risks, which, as I say, are all too late risks, so we'll only know about them after the event, um, really. It's something which we don't have, I wouldn't have thought, an evolutionary kind of basis in the mind to deal with, actually, because we, we never had to face something like that, I think. So I think it probably is true that human faculties are kind of obstructing what, to my mind, we should be doing. On the other hand, there is no certainty. So there is probably about five to ten chance that the climate change skeptics might be right and that at least the level of risk is less than we thought. On the other hand, there are very reputable scientists like James Hansen who say the risk is far more than the orthodox scientific community says. How do you deal with that? I mean, what civilization has ever had to live with that? No civilization, as far as I can see, only you know, in its locality. But we're talking about you know, the future of a whole global industrial order here. So I think your comment is correct, really. But, I think, you know, maybe we can find some kind of super mind that might be more effective at dealing with that. So you see, it's all very puzzling because, you, you know, you're going to create immortality, but you can't even cure the human common cold. <laughs> well, there's a thought in that, because this is what it's like. This is what the world is like. Do you think we're in even greater denial <clears throat> about population increase and the accelerating population increase than we are about climate change? Um, no, I don't, because I think... Um, Everybody is concerned about population increase that I know, and it's constantly stuff in the media and so forth. What we don't know is how to cope with it. So I'm not so sure we're in denial. But I think the case of climate change is different because there's a kind of denial about whether it's happening at all. I don't think that's true in the case of population growth, where more or less everyone with some dissenters accepts there are going to be about 9 billion people in the world. Um, but as I say... 
you know, if you look for them, there must be opportunities as well as the risks there. The risks at the moment seem huge, though. I certainly agree with that. And they obviously refract onto climate change because, you know, poor people are going to want to be wealthy. They're going to produce carbon emissions. So, you know, those risks overlap. Think, think about climate change. It overlaps with all the other risks in the world, including the risks of nuclear war if you should get... Um, collision between migrant populations or states who can't cope, you know. So the main issue is how all those things overlap in the future. And again, there is no clear answer unless you have one. I, you know, the, the only attempt to reduce world population has been the Chinese one, for which you need an authoritarian state, and in fact has led China with lots of problems because they've now got a massively aging population and not enough younger people to support them. You've explained that the governance structures you've seen are not impressive. Are there any examples at all that give you more hope that there are new ways of collectively addressing these huge risks and opportunities? Any bright spots? Well, I think, if I might say so, it depends which area you look. In the case of climate change... On the whole, at the moment, I don't think so. I think in case of climate change, we're taking a gamble with the possibility of innovation. We're driven back towards geoengineering, which we don't know much about, and which itself is hugely risky. But, you know, there's always a possibility that we could get the carbon out of the atmosphere on the large scale. There's always a possibility that someone could create something through nanotechnology that could absorb carbon. That's what... Actually, Kurzweil says in his book, although I don't think anyone's got close, but so I think in the case of climate change, you know, I think we're in a really risky area because we're kind of waiting until there's a huge catastrophe. And by the time there's a huge catastrophe, it's too late because you can't, unless we make technological breakthrough, you can't get the carbon emissions out of the atmosphere. In other areas like, you know, global economic governance, I think we're struggling, but... I do see some hopeful signs there, I think. I mean, surely we can't let, we can't let you know, the bankers get away with what they've done to us. We can't carry on a world where the poor are paying the costs of the follies of the rich. Therefore, I think there is significant movement towards trying to regulate um, sort of wild capitalism more effectively. I'm in favour of an absolute onslaught on the tax havens. I mean, about... Half the global capital in the world is kept in tax havens at any one time. Well, a lot of that money is ours, and we need it to rebuild the welfare state. So I think just as we should try and bring jobs back, we should try and bring the money back. Now, how you do that on a global level is very difficult because you need global cooperation of the kind that we're saying is very hard to achieve. But I think, you know, all the major countries can now see that the existing order of things is highly problematic and... Therefore, I would certainly hope for effective action there. As I say, therefore, it depends where you look. I think in the case of nuclear weapons, we have to wait and see. I think it's very dangerous. dangerous. You know, Israel might attack Iran this year. We're all sitting here, you know, by the summer, Israel might attack Iran with God knows what consequences. But if they don't and Iran gets nuclear weapons, also very dangerous for the world because nuclear proliferation is the only thing, to me, as, as dangerous um, as climate change. And I don't know how we'd cope with it if we've got a whole raft of nuclear states across the world. Because it's a similar situation, right? 
It, anyone could say, oh, well, there hasn't been a nuclear war, so it's all fine. But you've only got to happen once. It's only got to happen once, and tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of people could die. And this is there. It's not, you know, you can choose to ignore it, but it's there. And I'm not, I don't really think we've got that risk completely under international control. But to, to our credit, I think international community has tried very, very hard on that one. And so you can have some chances for optimism, rationally, on that, I think. Could we just have one last question, because I think my voice is going to, on the point of giving out, really. George Jones, former member of the Department of Government. A new student in the zoology department, is that right? <laughs> Doing a second degree. As the great exponent of the third way, you've, in a way, given us... Uh, the third way for the future, a little bit of optimism, a little bit of pessimism, mix them all together. Uh, but picking the question that was asked to my right, what advice would you give to the Prime Minister? The, or indeed to Mr. Miliband? Uh, one specific piece of practical policy making, because what you've been talking about, they're going to dismiss as airy-fairy waffle. <laughs> what does your... And you've been an advisor to both Mr. Blair and, and Mr. Brown. Not to and Mr. you compounded the third way. <laughs> what is the practical third way approach you'd like them to follow now? Well, I mean, you aren't, I hate to accuse you of imprecision, but this is not the way to put it at all. I mean, the third way debate is quite different from what I'm talking about here. It has no real direct connection, so I'm not arguing for some kind of third way on a global scale. That would be ridiculous. Also, in politics, we're well beyond that debate of the 1990s, 2000s today, I think, so I would have a different position. Um, I support some of the things that Ed Miliband is doing because... I think it's right to say that we've got to restructure capitalism and I think he's at least trying to um, make some steps towards that. And I think that's happening in many other countries too, including the United States. So, I, you know, I look on these things as important. Um, but at the moment, I don't think the left of centre has really got a sort of cogent political position. So I, but I just think we're well beyond the kind of stuff we were talking about 15 years ago, and the world is very different now. But I would say that what I was saying had nothing to do with these little parochial debates. And when you're talking about global issues, you know, an individual prime minister can make a difference, but you are talking about how we cope with, to me, a very different world globally from any world that anyone's had to live in before. So what I might say to Ed Miliband is not exactly going to make a massive dent in the future of the universe when you've got Ray Kurzweil circulating outside your door and when Google is far, far more important than any individual politician is, again, for better or for worse. Well, I'd like to say, I'd like to say thank you very much for coming and I do apologise for my um, bad health. Oh, well, I'm, I'm supposed to say that there are drinks and cough sweets provided outside of the auditorium. And I just 
remind you what I used to say when I was director of the LSE and handling graduation ceremonies. LSE, the one and only place to be. (laughs) 